You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's Ben Folks. Ben, it's President's Day. Uh, federal workers have the day off. But we are here uh, recording the podcast in advance of this weekend's UFC 170. How you doing? You doing anything fun this 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 holiday? And the thing about the thing that kind of sucks about our jobs is I never even know about these holidays until I I want to do something that's closed or the mail doesn't come or some shit like that. I just got no clue. I'm, I feel like I'm totally unplugged. Now, do you remember when we were in grade school and they used to have the two holidays? There would be like uh, where they it was like Washington's birthday and Lincoln's birthday yes, or something like that. Yes, I do remember that. Then they then they didn't they screw us. They took one of them away and yeah, they just now kinda, it's President's yeah, Day. It is kind of bullshit. Also, today you brought staph infection into my house. Should we should we talk about that? Well, I mean, I think the staph infection is kind of beaten down at this point. I got it under control. But, uh, yeah, I got a, I got a touch of the staph. But, uh, you know, it happens, man. It happens. You're, you're not looking quite as bad as Kevin Randleman, but... Uh... Honestly, uh, when I realized, was started to come around to the idea that I might have a little bit of a staph infection on my, my forearm here... That was the first thing I, I thought of is that hole in Kevin Randleman's body where you could see into him. Uh, man, that one that one really sticks with you, you know? Now, when you're a practitioner of the grappling arts such as yourself, are you just sort of trained to recognize staph infection? Do you have like, is it your uh, like your wallpaper on your computer is a is a staff picture of somebody's staph infection? Or how do you know that you have it? You know, I've had ringworm enough that that one I, c- I can spot ringworm like before it's even fully developed just because I know what it feels like and how it looks in its early stages. First time with the staff, though, and I probably would not have caught it nearly as early, except that after I was getting ready to leave the gym uh, the other night. I asked about one of our teammates who wasn't there, and one of the dudes told me, like, oh, he's home with a staph infection. And then I started oh, good thinking to know. about this weird thing uh, that I had noticed on my skin and thought, huh, maybe maybe I'm going to put two and two together here and go to the clinic in the mall, which is what I did. They <laughs> gave me a cream, and it's super powerful and works awesome. There you go. Deductive reasoning mm-hmm. at its best. That's right. You can't so see So you're lucky right you now. didn't get the staph infection like on your backside or, or someplace where you couldn't see it. That's right. If I had gotten it on my backside, as Chad Dundas and my grandmother would refer to it, that would be a problem for, for many reasons. Right on your derriere. Let's move on. On your behind. Three three rounds, as usual, this week for the co-main event podcast. And round number one, Leota Machida and Jacare Souza both got wins last weekend, which seemed like a big deal for the middleweight division until we learned that the UFC is going to take a cool three and a half months to figure out which one of them should be the number one contender. We're going to wait and see. And in round number two, does Sarah McMahon really have a chance to beat Ronda Rousey this weekend? And if she does, does she get to play Turtle in the new Entourage movie? And in round number three, so Daniel Cormier is going to fight a coffee barista this weekend in the fucking co-main event of UFC 170. Cool or not cool? All that plus Master Tweet Theater, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but right now, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from listener Darling Mike, who... 
uh, is kind enough to identify himself with his own adjective. I like that. Just so we know what kind of dude he is. Yeah, and Darling, he's not trying to make himself sound like super badass, like, oh, scary snake Mike or something like that. You know, he's not, I'm limitless Mike. Well, actually, I was going to say, Darling Mike sounds like he could be in a gang with Frankie Cars. <laughs> and, I don't know, maybe like Strawberry Shortcake. Well, he's like the, the guy who goes in and sweet talks sweet yes. talk the people he's while the he distracts them for the robbery. The face of the group. Yeah. Anyway, Darling Mike writes, I'm sure you guys caught Dana White's epic rant about PEDs during his lunch with the media last week. Fellas, what's up with that? Also, what's the media doing having lunch at UFC headquarters anyway? Well, okay, we uh, we were talking about this earlier, and the this is the media lunch, by the way, where Dana White goes fucking nuts about uh, the claims that you know MMA has a PED problem, uh, and apparently at one point takes out his flip phone. I appreciate Kevin Aioli uh, ma- noting this detail because uh, I, I think it's telling. Takes out his flip phone and says, "Who do you want me to test?" Uh, name me, who do you think is on the juice? You know, who needs to be tested? Name me 10, fi- 10 fighters right now and I'll test them right now. Um, and you had an interesting idea that I thought, and of course nobody said anything because nobody wants right. to be the person to slander somebody. Well, and- yeah, because it would be irresponsible for starters. Right. He's inviting you to engage in irresponsible journalism, knowing that if, that knowing that when he says that, no one's going to say shit. Like yeah. he's, he's basically, uh, he's going all in right there. Thinking you're going to fold because you think he's got a good hand. Right. And nobody says anything. Nobody names fighters for him. You had, I thought, a brilliant idea that if somebody could have suggested it, like, hey, you know what? Let's just take a division and do the top 10. Yeah, top 10 middleweights. Top 10 middle, top, top, top 10 light heavyweights. Do it right now. Test them for HGH, EPO, steroids, you know, CIR testing for synthetic testosterone and do it today. Let's do it right now. Top 10. Yeah, I don't and know. You could imagine the vein in his head bulging out <laughs> as you said that. I don't know that I would have had the wherewithal to think of that on the spot, uh, because despite the, you know, I'm just going to, let's just be real here. Like, despite the, the, the vast and near constant criticism heaped on the quote unquote MMA media in the Twitter verse, uh, I can say from experience that when you show up for a thing and you're not ready for it and Dana White just starts yelling at you like he, <laughs> like he does sometimes, uh, it's hard to, uh, be right on top of your game and have the exact right thing to say because, you know, usually when this happens, it's not a thing that you're like, expecting him to start yelling about. Right. Uh, and, and so I appreciate the fact that, that Kevin Ioli at least, uh, you know, tried to put up the fight for the, for, for the PEDs, Crusaders and the sport, uh, and enjoyed the fact that then on, on his, the headline of his ensuing story, uh, used the word unhinged to describe Dana White's, uh, Twitter rant. Uh, but at the same time, like, uh, you know, that's a, that's a hard job to go in there when, uh, when uh, Dana White starts uh, laying on the charm and looking at you with them chocolate brown eyes and then just starts screaming crazy stuff. It's well, tough to like and, and people always respond via social media like there's something you could do like, well, you're just not asking him the right questions or something as if you're ever going to get fucking Dana White to give you a straight answer to anything, no matter what you ask him ever. Well, and this is one thing that I've thought, too, was that. Because I'll see this, people saying the same things. Oh, why, why MMA media ask him the tough questions? I think for a lot of us, man, we've had these conversations, like with Dana White. Like we don't, you know, you can't do it every single time. Like I remember being 
at the event in Stockholm and afterwards, and it was, I think, shortly after Overeem had gotten popped by the surprise test by the Nevada Commission, so he's still dealing kind of with the aftermath of that, and we started talking about it. Uh, and, you know, hey, why doesn't the UFC do this? Why? And, you know, we kind of got into a lot of those issues then about, like, testosterone use and TRT and, uh, you know, the UFC's own, what the UFC could do for its own supplemental drug testing. You know, you get into that stuff, and what are you going to do? Are you going to show up next weekend at the, the next event and at the next scrum and have the same argument all over again? Like, we've heard his position on a lot of this stuff. So I think people sometimes want to selectively take, like, this one thing and be like, okay, I did, this this one issue I wanted to see wasn't addressed here. Well, man, because it was addressed like four weeks ago. And, you know, we got the same answers that we've been getting. I, I mean, I do think that, uh, like, in this one, he seemed to think that he was closing a door somehow by – issuing this challenge and nobody saying any names like he says at one point uh you know say say somebody's name say it uh and then i'm quoting from the aioli story after pausing for a second to silence he resumed then don't ever fucking it says expletive i'm assume that's fucking there then don't ever fucking say it to me again he said defiantly you guys like to play these fucking games let's do it i'm ready i'm down let's do this right now give me one name give me 10 names give me all the names you want i'll test all these expletives Fuckers, motherfuckers, right I now. I always just like to pretend that he says damn <laughs> with, every time it says expletive. Don't ever s- damn say it to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, like it's like we've done it. We've edited it for television. Right. <laughs> These Mickey fickies. I will test them all right now. Well, but see, and that's one where, hey, give me all the names you want. Okay. How about the entire roster randomly throughout the year for everything? Uh, like that's kind of, it seems like what the people who are serious about like real drug testing want. Um, but that's not what he wants is he, he wants a, you know, uh, this kind of challenge thing that he can win. And therefore, if nobody says anything, nobody's willing to just say, I irresponsibly speculate that so-and-so was on steroids. Then he could say, okay, then don't ever bring it up again. Like, no, we're probably going to bring it up. Yeah. And let me be clear as an addendum to my earlier statement that, uh, I don't disagree with people who criticize the MMA media, you know, a lot of the time. And I feel like, you know, it's a necessary thing and, and people should do it. However, I also know that, that it's a hard job and it's a tough situation to be in, uh, you know, when this kind of stuff happens and to think that you're going to react perfectly, uh, you know, you're, you're just not going to do that all the time. However, at this point, I think that the UFC or that Dana White in particular has done an interesting thing here and opened himself up. Up to some enterprising reporter, perhaps a Ben Folks or a Kevin Ioli, uh, should call up the UFC and say, hey, you know what? Dana White wants to do all this testing. Let's do it. Let's let's take your top 10 middleweights and uh, we'll do it as a as like a, a feature story for the for the website uh, or in your case for the uh, newspaper. That's right. Uh, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll t- test the top 10 middleweights for EPO and we'll do carbon isotope ratio testing and we'll test them for HGH and uh, we'll do it as kind of like an ongoing feature and, and we'll just see what happens and see what the see what the PR department or the people that, that run that, that kind of things, how what they would respond. Yeah, no, that, that, that would be interesting. And also it seems to be like the the thing that I don't get about his response to this is to act as if uh there's no one in the UFC that you don't know about who is using PEDs right now like dude you can't no one expects you to know all that so no one that's why we have these tests is to catch people who are cheating secretly and getting away with it like at one point where he asked, you know, name me one person in, in the UFC who's using PEDs who hasn't gotten caught. Dude, we don't know. That's why we do the tests. That's the whole point. Like, we we can't tell you. Uh, you know, like, 
the 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 thing that he seems to be getting like so defensive about is a thing that just makes it look worse for them because man, we don't expect you to make sure that like to preemptively make sure no one ever tries to cheat and get away with it like that would be unreasonable. Like, we wouldn't ask that of Major League Baseball commissioner or the NFL commissioner. What we ask is that you institute like a good enough testing program that we will find out that those people will be caught. And right now, no one believes that that is happening. Like, that's the issue. To just kind of go out there and make this assertion that, like, hey, nobody's on PEDs except for the people who've already been caught, and that's kind of the end of it. I mean, that's, like, there's no way he believes that. There's no way he, expects he, he can expect us to believe that. Like, that's a, a weird way, I think, of trying to approach the problem. No one's on PEDs until they get caught. Right. That just doesn't even seem possible. Uh, moving on, Dan Yoon writes to the podcast this week. He writes, after a string, after a string of high profile bad personnel decisions by Bellator, Alvarez, Rampage, Tito, Askren, did they finally manage to do something right by offering Gil, show me the money Melendez, a bit of that Viacom bankroll? That's, you know, we we haven't heard anything yet about exactly what he's being offered by by Viacom and right, and, and we also haven't heard right? if, if the UFC will match right. Uh, right. Uh, I, we've heard that Melendez has agreed to terms of whatever the the deal was that that Bellator offered him, but I think the UFC still has a matching clause in his contract where it can come back and 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 match, and then he'll he has to go back to the UFC. Well, and this is one where we heard that contract negotiations weren't going well on UFC tonight. What was it Thursday or Tuesday last week? Right. Yeah. Whenever that Wednesday, I think that shows on Wednesday. Sure. Uh, and the the message then from Dana White was contract negotiations negotiations aren't going well. I'm done. This guy should start looking elsewhere. And offered up as kind of a threat, like, oh yeah, you don't like what we're offering? L- good luck looking elsewhere. Uh, to which Gilbert Melendez seemed to reply, okay. Uh, <laughs> In a way, like, I'm kind of encouraged that, like, he seems willing to do that because a lot of the other dudes seem to be like, hey, I'll take whatever the UFC gives me because they're the biggest game in town and they don't want to, you know, for whatever, like, kind of perception value there is, like, in a difference between the UFC and Bellator, they don't want to take that chance to try and go over there and jump. Uh, hey, if Gilbert Melendez thinks he can get a better financial deal out of Bellator, then shit, man, by all means, get paid. You, you're not in this for very long. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, you know, if it works out this way, it's probably a little bit of a feel-good story for Gilbert Melendez. Not not a feel-good story for the fans who wanted to see him fight a lot of the top lightweights in the UFC. But, man, if he's getting paid, I'm, I'm not mad at him. I think he should go get all the money that he can. Uh, and, you know, to be honest with you, uh, Bellator starting to build a lightweight division that uh, – while not at the level of the USC still, it's also, you know, kind of intriguing if Gilbert Melendez goes over there and, and, and fights, uh, Eddie Alvarez or Michael Chandler or, or, uh, you know, any of these other guys that they have kind of coming up through the, through the ranks. If he fights one of the, one of the pit bulls or, uh, or, uh, Missoula, maybe both the pit bulls, maybe both of them at the same time or Missoula zone, uh, uh, Tim Welch, isn't he? Or he's a, a welterweight these days, isn't he? Yeah. And uh, but uh, Lloyd Woodard, as far yeah. as we know, still lightweight over there. You know, the Bellator has some good fighters, especially at that 155 pound weight class. So while I don't think that this move is like the landmark uh, happening that uh, I've seen and bandied about elsewhere, you know, I think it's a it's a good move for for that company if they end up with Gilbert Melendez and and you know perhaps as Dan Yoon suggests, things are looking up. Well, and one of the things I saw some people saying, and, and it's a reasonable question to ask, is, you know, are you going to end up paying more for Gilbert Melendez than you're getting out of him value-wise if you're Bellator? 
But I guess, I mean, if you're Bellator at this point. They don't point, care. They got five million in cash. Five billion in cash. <laughs> if, if you're Bellator at this point, like you've already, you're in the struggle with the UFC, right? Like they consider you enemy number one. Uh, you're, you're in that fight at this point if you're Bellator. So what do you, what is the alternative? Like, uh, we give up. We're going to stay number two, uh, and, uh, not try and spend the money to go out there and sign anybody big. Uh, we're just going to like keep doing like tournaments with Russian heavyweights you never heard of. Uh, I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to be in that, that competition to be number one, then you might as well spend the money and try and get some people and try and really do something. Uh, to me, it seems like, what they need is to get it in some fighters' heads and some fans' heads that uh, you can have good fights and a good division in either organization that just that the UFC does not just by putting those three letters in front of some fight uh, make it more valuable or more legitimate than any other fight. What are you talking about, man? We're all paying nine ninety nine a month for internet streaming shows. That you're the only not reason, paying the anything. The only reason we would even watch them is that it says UFC in the middle of the big octagon thing. You're not paying a goddamn thing. No, so that's you didn't right. See any prelims? I was being sarcastic that's right. just then. Did you notice that? Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, though. But doesn't Gilbert Melendez have the same uh, agent or manager as uh, as George St. Pierre? Uh, that's what Dana White said and, and made it clear that he was not a fan of the guy. Uh, another thing, too, it kind of strikes you as, man, it must be nice if you're a promoter to have your own TV show where you can, you know, put out this message of, hey, I'm mad at Overeem because he's ducking this guy. I'm basically, I'm going to, you know, put out the message that he's a pussy out there on our TV show. And then this other guy, I don't like his manager and he's the problem. So I'm going to see if I can drive a wedge between them. Uh, that must be a nice luxury to have. Yeah, state-run TV over there. Uh, it's not doesn't seem like it's working out though so far, especially not with Gilbert and Melendez. Now, here's what the point that I was gonna make. Uh, if if we're in the business of of trying to drive a wedge between Gilbert Melendez and and a manager who is also the the agent for uh, the biggest draw on pay per view that our sport has ever seen, king of pay per view, George uh, and the guy who also comes from the camp of another fella who, as far as we know, is retired, but certainly would have no qualms to go fight for another organization uh, by the name of Nick Diaz, wouldn't that be some shit if some stuff started to happen? Because then you would have your landmark happening. You know, Gilbert Melendez going over there is one thing, but, you know, if a dude like Nick Diaz decides to go over and sign it at Bellator uh, for some of that Viacom bankroll, you know, then then we can start talking about some of this stuff, maybe. Well, and I think that uh, Caesar Gracie suggested uh, perhaps on Twitter that maybe that something like that could happen. You know, you've seen the way Bellator kind of let War Machine just off the leash to say and do whatever uh Probably ill-advised, but can you imagine if the whole Caesar Gracie squad was over there, all those dudes just flexing, getting up in people's face, jumping people in the cage? Man, it'd be like the, the Wild Wild West days all over again. Just one step closer to that Bellator pay-per-view headlined by George St. Pierre versus Ben Askren with the co-main event of Nick Diaz versus War Machine. Wow, you're dreaming big right now. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Anyway, uh, moving on back to reality from Sam Knightley or Sam Kylie. He writes this week, 
Uh, am I the only person who has a, had a sour taste left in, the, left in their mouth by MMA and in particular the UFC as of late? It seems that the majority of decisions on the business side of the sport are geared to making the promoters money while leaving the fighters broke and seemingly in Chris Lieben's case broken. Yet the majority of fans, or at least the vocal majority that I have seen, defend the promoter's actions. Am I just cynical? No, you're not the cynical one, my friend. Or are these feelings of, uh, of, Ro- growing growing hatred fair uh kind of a theme i guess uh on these these listener mail questions this week and frankly we got a lot uh, you know a uh, uh, an enormous amount of mail this week about uh on these uh three sort of related topics i would say you know i've seen these kind of topics bandied a lot about on the internet a lot lately like you go to the ug uh and you see a lot of threads about man I'm starting to uh, starting to get a little jaded here, or uh, people upset with Dana White, and you know, affecting just their view on the sport and their desire to sit down and watch UFC uh, on Saturday night. It does seem like that's in the air these days, and it can't be just you know uh, a couple cynical dudes because I, I feel like I see it enough out there that it seems like that that's a prevalent attitude. Yeah, well, especially when a, uh, you you see a dude like Chris Lieben having fallen on hard times, a guy who, uh, you know, it's well established that he has his own self-destructive tendencies. Uh, and so we would have to say sort of as an aside that if he finds himself, as he put it, I believe on Twitter this week, broken with nothing, that, you know, some personal responsibility needs to be addressed there. But at the same time, a dude that for you know, nearly a decade was uh, one of the UFC's go-to guys to kind of come out and fight whoever they needed him to fight, including feeding him to Anderson Silva at one point, uh, and a guy who could always be counted on to go out there and turn in the kind of performance that we we're led to believe that, that uh, you know, sells shows and that the UFC likes to, to, to promote. Like, to think that that dude uh, would give all those years to the UFC and then find himself kind of uh, broke and alone when it was all over battling depression and whatever, you know, if any substance abuse stuff uh, is still going on. Kind of sad to think that way, man. Okay, that's sad, but I don't blame the UFC for that. I mean, I think that that, that mostly falls on Chris Lieben and, that you know, stuff he needs to, to work on. Because uh, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think that just because you fight in the UFC that they, and you've been fighting the UFC for a while and they really like you and, and, and help you out a lot. I don't think that that makes it so that you are their responsibility for the rest of your natural life. Right. And I agree with you, but I think that the fact that they pay all of these guys as independent contractors and for a guy like Chris Lieben comes in and does 22 fights kind of ends on, on a, on a note of losing four in a row. And then, uh, uh, to have the, the company or any company really just kind of be like, all right, well, have a good one. You know, we'll, we'll see around the corner, maybe 35 year old Chris Lieben or however old he is. Hope that you find a way to spend your next declining 35 years. It just, I mean, I'm not saying that they need to like babysit guys for their entire lives, but you know, I I wouldn't argue with some kind of even optional pension 401k plan available to fighters where I realize that this would probably screw up the, the deal of paying them in his, as independent contractors, but for the company to be like, Hey man, you know, we have this retirement fund option. If you want to, every time you fight, we'll invest, you know, 5% of your purse, 10% of your purse, uh, in a, in a, a matching 401k thing. So when you're done, maybe you'll have a little bit of money left over. Yeah. But Some I mean- guys would say no. 
But what's to say a dude like Chris Lieben, who we know is kind of a smart guy, uh, wouldn't wouldn't have said yes in 2004 or five, whenever he started his UFC career. That's possible. I mean, even, you know, NFL players and a lot of them go broke and end up feeling like they are physically broken and have nothing at the end of it. I mean, that happens in a lot of sports. So I don't know that that part is necessarily specific to MMA. I do feel like uh, when you point out some of the, the business decisions that, that the UFC is making, uh, you know, the fight pass thing might be one example of it uh, and how, hey, we're supposed to pay for these fights that are clearly not up to the quality of the other stuff we've been asked to pay for it in the past. It says UFC in the corner of the screen or the, says, by the clock, where the clock is. It, it says, says UFC down yeah, there. The clock is itself in the shape of an octagon, therefore, you know, whatever, we're, that, that we're supposed to uh, regard that differently. I mean, there's some stuff like that uh, or, you know, just other things that like where the the schedule seems have gotten the point where man you're you're pretty much guaranteed that if you're watching all the fights you're going to sit there and watch some guy who's O and O in the UFC against some other guy who's O and O in the UFC and probably going to see that several times over the course of the night if you have fight pass which of course Chad Dundas doesn't I mean there are some of those things where it definitely does seem like well, the UFC is getting pretty good at making the UFC money uh but the fighters aren't necessarily you know along for the ride for all of that. I can see how that, you know, people become disillusioned with that. And then, of course, when you got Dana White with the attitude of, if you disagree with me, I'm going to yell at you and possibly try and take some punitive action if I am able. And, you know, fuck you, pay me, I don't care what you think. Like, attitude at the top. You can only do that for so long before people are like, okay, if I don't like it, I shouldn't buy it. Uh, and you don't care about my opinion? Okay, well, then I guess I'll go do something else with my time. I mean, I think for, for people like us, I think that that's worrisome because, man, if people stop caring about this stuff, then writing about it will cease to be a job. So I would like for MMA to be something that we can all be continued in, like continually interested in and more and more people would get into it uh, because I think the sport itself is pretty awesome. I just hope that the outside stuff does not make it so that... Uh, you know, nobody wants to follow this stuff anymore in five years. Well, that will do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, I've been critical of Lyoto Machida at times throughout his UFC career. We've talked about it before on the show, how sometimes his sort of uh, hunt and peck fighting style, his kind of uh, uh, the lack of urgency he shows out there doesn't always seem like the most effective way to win a 15 or 25 minute fight. But I got to say, man, uh, I kind of like him at middleweight. Yeah, I agree. You know, we've we have kind of a, a small sample size so far. Only two fights. One of them a very short knockout against Mark Munoz. But then this this most recent fight uh, this past weekend again against another former light heavyweight and gay guard Musasi. Uh, and when I watch Machida fight, especially in this fight uh, against Musasi, he seems quicker. 
He seems uh, like he has a, a power advantage. He seems like there is a little bit of urgency there now somehow. And, uh, you know, as as far as I'm concerned, I thought this was a good performance by him last weekend. And I think, like, if he can continue to fight this way, it, it, which I think at least is is a departure from his, his more, like, plodding and boring uh, performances at light heavyweight, I feel like we've discovered a Machida that maybe most of us can agree on. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I wonder if maybe one of the problems that light heavyweight was he felt like he had to be careful uh not to get in too close against some of these guys get out muscled get pushed around some and maybe now that he's at middleweight and he's one of the you know he's a pretty good sized dude for middleweight that he doesn't have to worry about that as much because he seemed like you know he was getting down a little bit like he was loose he was not really afraid to, to come in there and come get a guy he was still doing his thing though where he'll make you chase him until you walk face first into some trouble uh so it was seemed like all the 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 good stuff about Machida's attack from before, only just more of it at times. Uh, and I mean, I thought that like maybe people won't really appreciate the full uh, quality of what he did there if they don't know how good Gegard Mousasi is, because I feel like he's also pretty good at middleweight. Machida kicked him upside the head a few times, and he didn't even really seem to mind. Uh, I mean, I think that that was a, a pretty solid performance by both guys, but the way Machida can just control a fight and now also you know, launch a little bit more offense, he could be a problem for a lot of dudes in the middleweight division. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I hope that this sort of... Uh, uh refocus that he refocused Machida that we've seen. I hope that he sticks around. Uh, obviously in the other and the co-main event from this past weekend, uh, we saw Jacare Souza pretty much handle Frankie. Souza? Yeah. We, had a, Souza? we, we changed the pronunciation, uh, this past weekend to like, just make it as confusing as possible. Right. Yeah. So Souza, Souza, Ronnie Susie. Uh, he went out and, and essentially handled uh, Frankie Cars, Francis Carmont, uh, over 15 minutes. Uh, I guess your, your second round was probably your best your best showing yeah. from from Francis Carmont. But Frankie Cars did a lot of grunting in that one. So as as I uh, tweeted to the effect on Saturday night, it seemed like Francis Carmont went from terrified to like frustrated to cocky to like exasperated back to terrified <laughs> then too confident in of his victory by the time that the, the fight was over uh, yeah uh you know and i guess good for him for being able to have uh jacare on his back for so long and not get tapped out at one point i thought he was about to get choked unconscious with one arm yeah uh, yes first round that was uh pretty awesome yeah that that would have been that would have been great and you know you bring up a good point clearly francis carmont is a guy who uh he's super tough to finish and a guy that we probably haven't heard the last of at this weight class also an enormous individual yeah if uh if our eyes are not deceiving us if the camera's not playing tricks uh, but, uh, I don't know that, uh, while impressive to not have, you know, one of the most decorated submission guys in the UFC choke you out with all that time on your back. Uh, I'm not sure that that's, that's really a, an attribute to brag about. You don't think that that's going to vault you into a title shot? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I, lost, I don't know. If enough I... guys get hurt, anything could happen. <laughs> but I did not get choked out. Well, you, you mentioned guys getting hurt because this seems like this is one of the things now like, all right, we've got to clear view of the middleweight contender picture, except that maybe Machida has a broken foot. Uh, Ronnie Susie needs to go get his elbow cleaned up or whatever. He's got some bone fragments knocking around in there. Plus, it's going to be another few months before uh, Vitor Belfort and Chris Wyden go at it, and the UFC's not going to decide what to do about middleweight until after then anyway. Uh, it also kind of makes me wonder, like, okay, so part of the big appeal was, like, we're going to find out if Leo Machida is going to be the next middleweight title contender, but then, oh, yeah, wait, we're not actually going to do that because we're just going to wait around anyway. 
Yeah, well, it's almost like they're kind of hedging their bets to just in case you know something crazy happens in the Vitor Belfort Chris Weidman fight, which it totally like, you know, could. Yeah, at this point, we've learned from experience that one of those dudes could shatter their leg, or or you know anything could happen. One of those dudes could not make it to the fight itself for a variety of reasons. You're talking about Chris Weidman, right? <laughs> like his house could flood again. He just can't can't get out to Newark to catch the plane. Or you know maybe maybe he gets a staff infection from you know partying in clubs with his shirt off. You know like maybe maybe that happens. Okay, it could happen. Anything could happen. Let me ask maybe you. Maybe Vitor is injured in like a uh, you know some kind of he's getting a, his mohawk touched up and uh, something goes wrong. It happens, man. Uh, let me ask you this though. Uh, if let, let's say that, that nobody's injured and Joe Silva calls you as he typically does when it's time to make the matchmaking decisions right. for the UFC. And he's like, Ben, I, I need somebody to fight the winner of Chris Weidman, Vitor Belfort. At this point, do you go Lyoto Machida or do you go Jacare Souza? Suzy, Salza, Salzal. Jacare Salzal. Jacare, alligator man. Uh, at this point, I think I go Machida. Uh, you know, I think you, you could go, if circumstances demanded it, you, you could go with Jacare. I wouldn't mind seeing Jacare fight somebody a little higher on the totem pole first and then kind of a, uh, you know, a clear number one contender fight, not the kind of fight where it's like, hey, if this guy wins, he'll be the number one contender. If the other guy wins, uh, we'll figure something out. But I mean, like a legit, hey, let's figure out, you know, who are, who are the two guys who, who might be there, have them fight each other. The winner definitely gets it. I'd like to see him in one of those. I think with Machida, you know, he's a former champ. He's come down a division. He's looked really good at middleweight so far. I would have no problem seeing Leo Machida uh, get the next title shot, regardless of, of whether it's Vitor Belfort or Chris Weidman who comes out of there wearing the strap. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm a big-time Jacare fan, as Me we too. all know. You love that alligator crawl. Uh, That's what you're a fan and of. The, and the chomp. I love to do the alligator chomp. Uh, and, you know, I came into this weekend poised to to – Mark out and think that Jacare should get the next title shot, but I thought Lyoto Machida just looked good against uh, Musasi, and and I think you make a good point. Certainly in terms of uh, time in the company, not necessarily time time in the division, but Lyoto Machida kind of has seniority. He's a guy that that UFC fans are probably familiar with. You slap his face on a poster opposite Chris Weidman or, or futuristic Macklemore, and you know uh, pe- <laughs> people are probably gonna gonna tune in. Uh, so I kind of agree with you. Uh, at this point, um, although I, I, you know, I don't know who you have Jacare fight. The guy's won six straight fights in the in at middleweight, dating back to you know his strike force career. Uh, maybe you set up a rematch with Luke Rockhold. I don't know. Uh, uh, but uh, as far as I know, coming into the his fight against Carmont, uh, Jacare was was ranked pretty high up there. Oh, now I'm I just pulled up the uh, the uh, official UFC rankings, because we know that those oh, are, are oh, the good. end all beat all of uh, where guys stand, and it says Jacare dropped a spot from three into from three to four. He got he switched places with uh, with Machida after this weekend. So there you go, your top ten list. Jacare goes out and manhandles Frankie Cars, and he drops a spot. Huh. Well, that is interesting, isn't it? You know, uh, I heard the the possibility of a rematch with Luke Rockhold tossed around. Didn't seem like Jacare was terribly enthusiastic about it. Uh, I don't know if it was a super awesome fight the first time. I mean, they, they both changed a little bit since then, so it might be interesting to see that one again. I don't know. I feel like there's there's better game out there at middleweight, though. And right now, it seems like the middleweight division is just on the verge of getting really interesting. And I, part of that might be that uh, Anderson Silva's off uh, with, you know, shattered legs somewhere, or the, walking around with a metal rod in his leg, so we don't know, you know, kind of frees up the space a little bit, similar to George St. Pierre vacating his title. 
but I, I think that there's a lot of interesting matchups you can make there. Uh, I guess the thing is that if these guys can stay healthy enough to fight a few times a year so that we can actually figure it out. Because right now, that seems like the big question mark. Well, here's the rest of your middleweight top ten according to the UFC.com. you got Michael Bisping, uh, Luke Rockhold, Mark Munoz, Tim Kennedy, Francis Carmon, who we already beat. you got Costas Phillip, who says Costas on here. Uh, uh, Tim Boach, um, and then Musasi, Belcher, Brad Devaris, and, and Chael Sonnen still in the top 15 there. So um, I don't know that any of those guys uh, would, would – I don't know that beating any of those guys would would improve Jacare Souza's uh, resume per se. I guess avenging that loss to, to Luke Rockhold maybe, but uh, I don't know, man. It seems like a conundrum as to what, what you do with uh, the alligator if, if Machida goes on to, to fight for the title. Yeah, that's true. Or maybe, you know, whoever comes out of the loser in the uh, Weidman-Belfort fight, maybe uh, after Jacques Ray gets his elbow cleaned up, he fights that guy. Who knows? Well, that's going to do it for uh, round number one. Sir Nigel Longstock is here. We are going to get started with a game of Master Tweet Theater, including, by the way, a brand new theme song for Master Tweet Theater submitted to us by Eddie Ziegler, a longtime listener. So I'm excited about that. Well, get ready to be judged harshly by all all our listeners, Eddie Ziegler. (laughs) Uh, We're going to do that right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the show a friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am rolling. What does that mean? Well, you know, the weather's a little warmer, the birds are in the trees, the bees are wherever a bee lives. Right. Under the sea, right? Yeah. The bees no. at the sea? This is why I keep telling people to subscribe to your uh, nature podcast, because it's full of helpful insights like these. Sir Nigel in the woods, every week for 20 minutes to four hours. Depends <laughs> on how it goes. Well, those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel's going to read us off some tweets from some characters in the MMA sphere. Chad and I are going to try and guess who they are. Uh, do we have a theme this week? We do, sir. The theme is moments of reflection. Oh, Oh, good. That sounds like that will be a lot of fun for everybody. Oh, yes. Except for those of us who don't want to reflect on anything. And those listening at home, I imagine. (laughs) Well, of course, for them. Whenever you're ready, I guess you go ahead and hit us with the first one. Yes, let us begin. Tweet the first. (laughs) Jesus. So I took the screen out of my window, breaking into my house, and my damn cat jumped out. Now I have to wait until Tuesday to get her back. (laughs) Really, he's going to start us off with this one, Chad? I guess so. I guess he is. Right out the gate. Well, that's Chris Lieben. Uh, I think we all saw that, especially when we went to check out what was going on with Chris Lieben after he he tweeted out that he wished he'd become a long-haul truck driver instead of a, an MMA fighter. I do appreciate what you did with the voice there at the end. Kind of like almost like disturbingly, coquettishly sad. The best story is a personal journey. You know, one moment you're breaking into the house, the next minute you miss your kitty. Uh, am I the only one confused by kind of the timeline of events in that Chris Lieben's tweet? Why is, why, so he took off the screen to break into his own house, cat escaped, and he has to wait until Tuesday to get, if the cat escaped, how is he sure he's going to get it back Tuesday? It is, it is my understanding that the cat was picked up by animal control. 
and then but they make him wait until Tuesday to yes, have it back. Yes, they're they're closed actually on Sunday, and I assume Monday because of President's Day. Oh yeah, but the animal control people. Uh, they, they care about some motherfucking presidents over there. Also, they take one look at Chris Lieben's house, and they're not giving his cat back. <laughs> Feel better, Chris. <clears throat> Tweet the second. Blur comes on radio, automatically thinks of Bisping. I'm glad I'm not the only one. You got a guess here, Chad? Uh, yeah, but it's just a guess. Maybe, maybe Tim Kennedy Fuck, thinks I they're going to fight? I was going to say Tim Kennedy. Fuck. I'm going to say Tim Kennedy, too. All right. Both fine guesses, both grounded in reason, both, as usual, wrong. It is Kazushi Sakuraba. No, it's not. Sakuraba, just thinking of Bisping for some reason. Fuck you, that's not true. Kazushi Sakuraba tweeted it today. Is that a verified Sakuraba Twitter account? Well, that's a good question. Because you've been tricked before. No, it's true. I I mean, I want to believe it's well, Sakuraba. So do I. If if there is a Sakuraba Twitter account, I'm just going to be mad at myself that I'm not following it. The Kaz. <laughs> That's what I call it. Not if he's around. <clears throat> Tweet the third. I am uh, leaving out the tweeter's uh, signature sign-off here because it would make it too easy. Okay. <clears throat> Tweet the third. I guess now we know it's someone who has a signature sign-off. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it does narrow the pool down a little bit. He has recently adopted it. <clears throat> Tweet the third. Awoke at 5.30a. Couldn't sleep because... I know something great is going to happen today, even if I have to make it happen. <laughs> what the fuck is going on here? All red as written, sir. That is pretty scary. Capital letters at the end. Well, capital letters at the end would take out Pat Barry, who also usually has a sign off, right? Yeah, I like that you're working with a process of elimination here. <laughs> I guess I'm going to say Daniel Cormier because he also always signs his tweets at the end. Yeah, that's a that's a good move because Daniel Cormier is one of the only guys I know who has a recognizable sign-off on their tweets because, you know, with the character limit, it's almost like you don't want to mess around with right. like a tagline. And if you've seen how Twitter works, you know that we already see who is tweeting it. You don't need to sign them all. Yeah, you can't you can't tweet that's the bottom line because Stone Cold said so at the end of your tweets because that's all you got. That's yeah. all you can say. Uh, I'm the, to me, this sounds like the poet Philip Baroni. And so while I don't know that he has a characteristic sign-off on Twitter, I'm going to guess the Pope Philip Baroni here. Okay. Both fine guesses, both grounded in deduction, both wrong again. It is Dan Severn. And what is Dan Severn's sign-off now? Beast out! <laughs> wow, that's amazing! Exclamation point, capital out. Uh, and that's on all his tweets? Well, all of his recent tweets. I think he recently thought of it. Well, kudos to Dan Severn, then. That is pretty fucking awesome. Like a text message from your mom. <laughs> the name right there at the end. If my mom were a beast. Mm. <laughs> Let's just move on without comment. <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. If you don't take care of your body, where are you going to live? Unknown. So we're, so we're dealing with a quote attributed to unknown? A quote attributed to unknown, or he's answering the rhetorical question. Unknown. I, see, I was going to go Ariani there until Sir Nigel just said he. Oh, really? Uh, oh, shoot. No, Ariani, she, she gets her quotes and all her wisdom, it seems like, from Facebook, so it's always attributed to some philosopher, even if it sounds pretty much antithetical to all that philosopher's views. I'm going to say Randy Couture. This sounds like a Couture to me. Yeah, that's a pretty good guess, actually. Uh, 
Well, you know, Ariani always tweets about keeping it healthy and sexy or whatever. She's like mm-hmm. a body quote, not necessarily out of the realm of possibility for her. Uh, boy, I like couture there. I feel like that's a smart guess. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go Rich Franklin in your face. Yeah. The, the other couture, basically, as far as Twitter's concerned. Both fine guesses, both students of philosophy, and Chad is right! Damn it! It is Rich Franklin. Yes! Yeah. Where are you going to live? Your Jamba Juice? No, it's not ready yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think his juice place is up and running, by the yes, way. Yes, I presume so. The story I, got less interesting there. Well, you know, I, but I've heard that uh, he's actually, he's like, he's like working the counters in the juice place. Oh, really? Yeah. That's Which is great. like the one thing that makes me think that that business idea might actually succeed. He should call it Ace Juice. Yeah, let's move on. Okay. Tweet the fifth. If I could go back in time and film reality show with at Hammerhouse MMA and film everything with that crew, we'd be rich and famous. Ha ha. <laughs> now that's the poet Philip Baroni, I believe. <sighs> yeah. Am I allowed? I, well, I guess I already used my poet Philip Baroni this week. So, um... Let's see here. Hammer House Crew. Uh, uh, Wes Sims. I'm going to say that's a tweet by Wes Sims. Man, is Wes Sims on Twitter? Well, God, I, I hope he is. It is Philip Baroni. The poet's words ring through the ages, here wishing he had staked more of his career on Hammer House. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was fun. Uh, Sir Nigel, what do you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask, yeah. sir. Yeah, I've it is. just finished wrapping a heartwarming film about a man who suffers total amnesia and must rebuild his relationship with his wife before decapitating her and marrying someone new. And what's it called? Regarding Henry VIII. <laughs> and what role do you play? One of the wives. I'm not sure. The fat one, I think. <laughs> All right. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Chad, the main event this weekend at UFC 170, women's bantamweight champion Ronda Rousey puts her title on the line against a fellow Olympian, uh, wrestling silver medalist from the 2004 Games, Sarah McMahon. Olympian on Olympian action. That's right. And, wouldn't you know it, during the w- Winter Olympics. How stoked are you for this, as the snowboarders would say? Boy, that's, you know, a lot of people would call that irony. When in fact it's coincidence, that's what that is. No, uh, I'm I'm reasonably excited for it. I think that this uh, is an interesting fight for a lot of reasons, though I think that the least of them are the actual physical matchups. Uh, stylistically, I don't know that uh, I'm that stoked for Sarah McMahon's chances against Ronda Rousey. Uh, uh, which I suppose that we can talk about as this round progresses. But I mean, I think that all of this stuff kind of percolating around the fight are, is a little bit more interesting to me. It's, it's, uh, it's a weird time for Ronda Rousey in some ways. You know, she's a, she's obviously become a, a big star, uh, for the UFC and I think is on the verge of, of getting much bigger. 
Uh, you know, she's got these new movie roles and uh, she's coming off like just an eight week turnaround for this fight. Uh, she seems very cool, calm and collected uh, leading up to the Sarah McMahon fight. Uh, it's a, 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 a stark contrast to how she was before the Misha Tate fight. Um, and I get the impression that, you know, she just wants to get through this one so that she can then get to uh, her scheduled time off for the UFC where she's going to, uh, you know, rest up a little bit and go go. Uh, make the entourage movie and yeah. possibly the Athena project. Uh, I also uh, heard that she's playing a, a female uh, lead in a, a Knight Rider movie. I made that up, but I'm trying to start that rumor. That's good. Well, maybe yeah. we can, we'll get that out it's on like a female Michael Knight. Just put that on, thing. put that on Twitter. Yeah. So no, I mean, what I'm, I, I, I think it's, it's finds Ronda Rousey in, in an interesting place in, in her career. Uh, and, and to me that, that kind of is interesting because it, it, it puts us in a situation where, uh, you know, as we've seen with maybe with John Jones or somebody like that in the past, it's, it's a, it's a fight where maybe if she's going to slip up, this could be the one. Really, I felt like it would have been the last one that, cause it seemed like there she had just come off a movie set, really quick camp, then goes into this fight with, with her, her hated rival, Misha Tate. I mean, I guess I can see what you're saying that she seems to have a lot of the same distractions now and probably is fighting a, a better fighter or at least a better wrestler, certainly, uh, in Sarah McMahon. I don't know though. I feel like, uh, she's one of those fighters where the other aspects of her game are developing so quickly and the existing aspects were so good that if you were going to beat her, you want to fight her earlier rather than later. You know, the later you get her, the, the more dangerous she's going to be. Her striking seems like it's probably going to even have been, have be better this time than it was last time. And Sarah McMahon, not necessarily known for standing there and throwing them bungalows. So I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that Sarah McMahon just is a good enough athlete to be able to give her some problems, but I don't, I'm, I have a hard time figuring out how Sarah McMahon beats her. Like, how do you see it? Like, what yeah, decisions? Yeah, that's, that's the thing. Uh, Sarah McMahon is kind of, uh, uh, cautious, methodical fighter, really. Uh, you know, you go back and you watch that, uh, her UFC fight against Sheila Gaff, which, by the way, includes one of the great lost puns of the modern UFC era when Sheila Gaff sprints out of her, her corner and goes straight for Sarah McMahon and gets double legged. And Joe Rogan says, Oh, she committed a gaff, all right. What, really? <laughs> Did that actually happen? Yeah, man. And got some videos on your website, the web website that you work for. Wow. When you don't have the ink-stained fingers of a newspaper man. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, it's a tough spot, I think, for Sarah McMahon because obviously she's known most for her wrestling. And I don't think taking Ronda Rousey down and being on top of her is what you want to do so much. Uh, but... At the same time, I feel like if you get into a situation where you're trying to use your wrestling only defensively and, and trying to stay on your feet to strike with her, uh, if you think that that's her weakness, I think you're going to get thrown at some point. I think she's going to get you in that, in that judo hurricane that she can do and, and you're going to, you're going to get thrown. Well, I, I guess I might feel a little better about Sarah McMahon's chances if that was something we had seen from her is an ability to, you know, stay behind the jab or something and just keep the fight at a distance and, and really work it there. That's never been her strategy, it seems. I mean, she is more likely to either try and load up on big punches and uh, usually use them as a transition into a takedown or a clinch or you know some, some form of body lock. She wants to try and push you up against the fence and then get you down and, and beat on you. I mean, who knows? Maybe... Uh, Maybe you go in there and you, you grind it out there until Ronda Rousey slows down. You show that you can defend some submissions and you just, you know, do the old Randy Couture where you just, you know, suck the life and the, the will to compete right out of them. We've never seen anybody really get close to doing that against Ronda Rousey, though, is the thing. 
Yeah, you know, one of the things about Ronda Rousey that we don't talk about a lot because she's so dominant, because she's, you know, uh, she's got that arm bar and, and she's so skilled, I think maybe is one of the reasons that we don't talk about it. But one of the things about her is she's big for this weight class. Yeah. She is big for 135. Uh, I think, I believe her bronze medal in judo in, at, at the Olympics was at, uh, 70 kilograms, which, uh, if you can do the math is like 230 pounds, 230 pounds. Well, yeah. she see. So her, her bronze medal is at 70 kilograms in judo. Uh, Sarah McMahon's silver medal in, in women's wrestling, I believe was at 63 kilograms. So back in their amateur career, they're, they're competing like uh, 15 pounds apart or something well, like that. I don't know if you ever saw any pictures of Ronda Rousey from her judo days. Um, but let's just say it seemed to be before Hollywood got its mitts on her. So you're saying it was pre-makeover? Is that what, we're, what you're yeah. saying over here? Yeah. Let's say that. All right. Well, let's just leave that alone and, and, and continue on with my, my pension point. Uh, and that, you know, she's a, she's big for the weight class. She's, she's got a big, uh, skeletal frame for the weight class, man. I just don't know that, uh, I don't know. You can go out and Randy couture her if you were a normal 135 pound bantamweight. That's possible. By the way, uh, I'm going to use big skeletal frame as the name of my hardcore punk band. I hope you don't mind. Uh, <laughs> you're going to the new BSF show this weekend, man. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a problem. One of the things that I'm, really going to be interested to see how it plays out though is i you know when ronda rossi fought misha tate uh the the hatred toward her in the building that night was palpable and you know because of the ultimate fighter thing a lot of people seem to have either become misha tate fans or more likely just uh were against ronda rossi and you know it seems like that some of that has kind of died down now i wonder though how it will be against sarah mcmahon because i feel like not a whole lot of people know sarah mcmahon uh, I wonder if they're going to just get on her side because she's the person fighting Ronda Rousey. I wonder if that, like, you know, the the feeling that Ronda Rousey is the, the heel that they love to hate, I wonder if that's still there or if people are going to, you know, soften on that and just regard her as, well, she's the superstar in this fight. And I, I have a hard time seeing the same charged reaction to her but i mean i guess we'll see yeah uh i kind of feel the same way i feel like that's died down a little bit um clearly the ufc doesn't think it's hurt her marketability at, at all the uh the dana white during when he went on his quote-unquote unhinged uh tirade uh, had a lot of really nice things to say about her uh while simultaneously trashing alistair Overeem. uh literally hiding yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, if anything, I feel like maybe that that kind of uh, heelish turn uh, increased her marketability because, you know, some people will probably be tuning in to, to cheer her and some people will, will be tuning in to uh, to hope that she gets beat. Um, I talked to both her and Sarah McMahon this week for uh, a thing that I'm writing, I think, for CNN.com. I've been told we'll see if it winds up there, but it'll be uh, on Bleacher Report for sure. And the thing that struck me really about Sarah McMahon is uh, – uh, how much she doesn't seem to enjoy the publicity of all of this. Uh, and, you know, I, I asked her what would be different for her if she became women's bantamweight champion. And she said she would probably be committed to a mental institution from the attention from the media, uh, which I think puts that's her, you, by the way, that's me. She said that to me while I was talking to her. I <laughs> laughed nervously. <laughs> Fake media laugh. <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, that puts her in stark contrast to Ronda Rousey, who obviously uh, loves that kind of stuff. Um, and I wonder... Or at least doesn't openly hate it quite as much. I, I feel like to be her, you have to like it. Like, to be a star that big, you you have to, uh, uh, on some level, uh, kind of feed off the attention. And I don't feel like Sarah McMahon is that way at all. And I wonder if that is... Uh, 
almost unreasonable as a person who is uh, who has an opportunity this weekend to be uh, the UFC women's bantamweight champion to kind of like want to remain super private. Well, you're assuming that the same super hot, uh, super intense spotlight that shines on Ronda Rousey would transfer over well, in its no, entirety no. to Sarah McMahon. No, not in, in it, not it's in it, not in its entirety. But you're a UFC champion. Uh, them reporters are going to want to talk to you. Yeah, you know she would have to do some interviews as a UFC champion. That is true. Uh, but I don't think that you take the title away from Ronda Rousey and give it to Sarah McMahon, and Sarah McMahon's going to be, uh, you know, playing the female Michael Knight in that that Knight Rider movie that you're so excited about. Everyone, please just get that rumor started. I think it could go somewhere. No, I'm not, I mean, she's. I don't think she's. I'm not do trying that. to suggest that, but I'm trying to say I think that it's weird to to be involved in this main event title fight and have your attitude about it kind of be like, well, if I win, I'm going to go crazy from the attention. Like you would think that, like that's kind of like what it's what you're. It's kind of part of the deal. Yeah, man. it is kind of part of the deal. And I, I, I like Sarah McMahon a lot. I think that she's a very likable person. Uh, I, I just think that's kind of a strange aspect of this fight. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it also seems like here's one where you before Ronda Rousey would always just take whatever storyline was there and play it up. Hey, with the Misha Tate thing, uh, you know, they're super, we, we hate each other with when it was her and Liz Carmouche, it was, oh, we're making history because the first two, you know, and this one, it just kind of feels like, okay, this is the next one. This is, this is the next one we got to get through. I feel like maybe physically this is the the toughest test we've seen her face. I mean, especially in the UFC, it's definitely the toughest fight that she's had. Yeah, especially athlete-wise. I think Sarah McMahon is, a, is a, a better pure athlete than a lot of the people she's fought. But I don't know. It feels like and with a lot of the other ones, like she'll if, if there's not a story there, she will come up with one and feed it to you, which is one of the things that makes her a good interview. Uh, and this one, I don't necessarily get that. This one just seems like, okay, well, this was on the calendar. The UFC said I had to show up and defend the title, so that's what I'm going to do here. Well, she did tell me she thought the Olympian versus Olympian thing was a, an important moment in the sport. So there's your storyline. Okay. Ben, boom. folks, feed that into your choose-your-own-adventure that you're <laughs> writing about Ronda Rousey. Let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round three. Uh, ben, what, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, I got to give out a referee. Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, no! Yeah. Uh, well... You don't know this because you didn't watch the prelims. Because That's right. You I was out doing stuff and having fun. What were you doing? Don't remember. Uh-huh. You weren't doing anything. Sitting around here watching Steel Magnolias again. That's what you were doing. If it was free, it was still a better deal. <laughs> well, in the, the featherweight bout between uh, Felipe Arantes and, and Maximo Blanco, you know, Maxi has some trouble with the rules sometimes. His reputation precedes him, sir. But he was keeping it together in this fight. Then he throws uh, an inside leg kick, and uh, it hits Ar Arantes right in the pills. And then you could just hear the thump on the cup. Uh, but... You know, it wasn't like it had happened a bunch already in that fight. It was seemed like, you know, unintentional, just the kind of thing that happens a lot with inside leg kicks. Uh, kicked him in the groin, though. Referee Mario Yamasaki, not even playing around with him, takes a point away from him. No warning, no previous, you know, incidents in that fight. Uh, perhaps because of Maximo Blanco's reputation as a guy who has trouble following the rules. Point deduction right away. But then... It, Mario Yamasaki, also the ref in the main event between Leota Machida and Gegard Musasi, and Musasi, uh, who has also had a problem with this, illegal, uh, lands an illegal upkick to Machida while his knee is on the mat. Machida has to give Yamasaki the look like, oh man, come on, tell me you saw that. 
Uh, then Yamasaki steps in. No point deduction. Just gives Musashi a little stern talking to. Give Machida a second to, to recover. I mean, I like that we're enforcing the rules right away, but we're not going to do it equally throughout the entire fight card. I mean, this is exactly what we've been talking about, isn't it? That you don't even know what's going to happen when you commit a foul in MMA. Could be something immediate. Could be nothing at all. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? How is anybody supposed to know what happens when you break the rules in this sport? Are you fucking kidding me? Same referee, same night, same building. Fucking kidding me? This week, man, my are you fucking kidding me concerns are borderline obsessive and breathless coverage chronicling Anderson Silva's rehab efforts a week or so How's he doing? ago. How's he doing? That's Tell what me. I'm talking about. We had a video of Anderson Silva walking down some stairs. I don't know, maybe shot by the same guy who took that video of George St. Pierre drinking Coronas in Miami. It's possible. That's all I'm saying. And today we get a photograph of Anderson Silva uh, appears to be laying on top of another guy at, at what could be grappling practice. Could be staged, maybe, maybe, maybe not. What I'm saying is, are we really going to turn Anderson Silva's recovery into an episode of Finding Bigfoot? Are we going to, are, are we, are we going to get a year's worth of 15 second Instagram videos and disembodied photographic evidence? Are you fucking kidding me? Here, you know what? When Anderson Silva calls the UFC and tells them he's ready to fight somebody, shoot me a text. A text? Yeah. Well, actually, you know, you won't have to do that because Dana White is going to tweet about it in all caps with six exclamation points. Until that happens, let's take a fucking chill pill on the Anderson Silva rehab train. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you kidding me? At least so I'm walking up some stairs. Then I'll be impressed. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, we had some issues leading up to UFC 170 when uh, former light heavyweight champion Rashad Evans pulled up lame and was forced to withdraw from his fight with Daniel Cormier. Uh, not to worry, though, because uh, after a brief period of uh, uncertainty, the UFC uh, jumped back on the horse and signed one Patrick Cummins to fight Cormier this weekend in the co-main event. Uh, now... On one hand, I feel like this is kind of awesome and like underlines one of the great things about the sport. And that is, uh, whether or not we agree or disagree with a lot of the UFC's policy decisions, uh, it is a company that runs in such a way that it is nimble enough and streamlined enough that when, uh, it gets, uh, uh, chicken salad, or chicken shit, as Brock Lesnar would say. Yeah, that's uh, how it goes. It can, uh, it can kind of, you know, make something out of it. And and you know, you go sign this kid, Patrick Cummins, who's four and zero, and a uh, a wrestler from from Penn State, uh, and you give this guy an opportunity to make what I assume are his dreams come true. I feel like that's kind of awesome. On the other hand, you got a guy who's four and zero. Uh, and as, as, you know, fought sparingly dating back to 2010 and a guy who was working as in a coffee shop who is now going to come in on very short notice and fight, uh, expected number one contender in the weight class, Daniel Cormier. What's your take? Awesome or not awesome? You know, like you, I see that it appeals to some of our, our sentimental nature that we like to, to think of, Hey, this, this fairy tale kind of thing, dude. 
can get plucked out of obscurity, uh, go in there and, and with one good night become a superstar kind of instantly on the map. However, I also recognize that that's probably not going to happen. And the USC is probably just going to like hype it up and sell you a story, uh, that it hopes you will pay for. And then the fight itself will probably be not very competitive at all. Like it seems like part of the thing that you're, it's selling right now is the chance that, Hey, by bringing up this thing where Patrick Cummins says he made Daniel Cormier cry in training when he was his, a training partner of his for the Olympics. Uh, that you're just going to piss off Daniel Cormier enough that he's going to do something terrible to Patrick Cummins, and that will be worth watching. I mean, it seems like they're selling kind of those in equal measures. Uh, like, hey, do you believe in in fairy tales? No? Well, how about just, like, terrible, horrible violence? Do you believe in that? Do you believe in righteous vengeance? Uh, either one. Fifty four ninety nine, uh, And, okay, I mean, I guess I can kind of see that. And I, the thing that kind of is more confusing to me is the idea that where MMA fans kind of jumped on it, well, like, well, hey, come on, he cut weight and he trained so hard for this opportunity. It'd be a shame to keep Daniel Cormier off this card just because Rashad Evans got hurt. As if we're somehow, like, just because Cormier wants to stay on the card, uh, that would be in itself reason enough for him to just fight anybody. Just pick somebody out of the crowd. Have Daniel Cormier beat up on him so he can get paid. Uh, otherwise, he's going to be sad. We don't want Daniel Cormier to be sad. He's such a nice guy. Like, that's the the kind of part that I don't get. Like, I thought we wanted to see, like, really competitive matchups. Because if he beats Patrick Cummins, so what? What does that do for him? Well, he didn't lose, so that would be better. <laughs> yeah, uh, but no, you're, you're right. It does nothing for him. He comes into this fight, I believe, as something like a negative 1,200 favorite. Uh, and on top of that, as you mentioned, the uh, bad blood angle is just a really weird fit for Daniel Cormier because he's so nice, and we all know this. He's such a reasonable person. And, you know, when they put him up there on, on Fox Sports Live on on, on – uh, uh, the, the opposite Patrick Cummings on their show there, which is lucky that the UFC has that ability to, uh, film this, uh, angle and, and put it out there for all to see. Uh, it's just, it just doesn't come off, you know, where he's like, I, I'm not even going to call you Pat. Yeah. I'm going to call you Patrick that's because we're nice, not friends anymore. That's just what like, a nice guy oh he is. man, like that, that's the best. That's the best we got here. Yeah. Like that ain't Chael Sonnen up there. No. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. He will get so mad. He will call you by your full name. Yeah. No, that, that is, that does, I think, highlight what a nice guy Daniel Cormier is. But also like, you know, I don't think he's the kind of guy where you get him mad and it makes him, it throws him off his game and makes him do something stupid. I think he's the kind of guy where you get him mad and he beats the shit out of you. And yeah. Patrick Cummins, I mean, he seems like a, like a good dude for the most part, except for bringing up this thing about making Daniel Cormier cry. Uh, it also seemed like when I talked to him, he kind of sort of said like, well, hey man, I had to do something. Like he had to give something, people some reason to think that, that this is a the interesting fight, something to latch onto. Uh, and that and he kind of said that this has, had been how he thought he was going to get in the UFC was that somebody was going to get injured and they were going to step up. And, you know, and that has been the, the, the path in for a lot of guys. Meanwhile, you got Ben Askren sitting over there going, really? I haven't fought anybody. I, I need to go out there and fight some people in world series of fighting or whatever. This guy's four and oh against guys who, collectively have twice as many losses as wins. Uh, but, you know, he calls you from the coffee shop and he, he gets on Twitter and he gets a, a co-main event. Like, that is the kind of stuff where you can understand how people outside of the sport are like, wait a minute, you guys are doing what over there? I mean, if you're a fight fan, I guess maybe you kind of get it. And like you said, you know, Daniel Cormier is a 12 to 1 favorite. Do we like these fairy tale stuff enough that if if the odds were totally correct, say 
one out of every 12 times you do this kind of thing, the dude actually wins or, you know, turns out to be awesome and we have a, a, a feel-good story on our hands. The other 11 times he just gets absolutely fucking smashed. Is that is that worth it? Would, would that justify it? I mean, I don't think you're going to buy the pay-per-view to watch that. I do have to admit that during the brief period that we didn't know who Daniel Cormier was going to fight, I did sort of enjoy the Daniel Cormier against the world uh, storyline that developed there where he was basically like, I don't care. I will fight anyone. I will fight a heavyweight. I'll fight a light heavyweight. Chael Sonnen gets into it, obviously, because you know he's going to. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, I did sort of, for, for whatever reason, find it humorous, the notion that, that Daniel Cormier, uh, offered to fight anyone in the world. And then lo and behold, the UFC finds him almost anyone, like some guy <laughs> none of us had ever heard of before. Uh, and, and so, I liked that part of it. I agree with you. It'll probably be a whitewash and uh, we might come away feeling a lot different about that aspect of it after the fight is over. But at the same time, this is one that uh, if there was one fight that was going to make the MMA gods uh, peer over the top of their newspaper with their glasses on the end of their nose and go, what now? <laughs> like, this is it. This is it. And, and not that uh, Patrick Cummins is going gonna, is gonna to win this fight, but if he did... It would just be another example that the MMA gods will not be mocked. Well, and it seems like one of those things where the the best reason to think Patrick Cummins will win the fight is because of how badly it would fuck things up for the UFC if he did, or just how like insane it would be. Like, there's you look at the the, the match. He would have wise. to fight Ben Askren. <laughs> the re, the, then his next fight in the UFC would have to be Cummins versus Askren. <laughs> you know, it, it, like. The fact that it seems so implausible and the fact that we've seen crazy stuff happen at inopportune times seems like the best argument in favor of it possibly happening. I submit, though, that a much more plausible scenario would be Daniel Cormier goes out there and absolutely smashes him, like, and smashes him bad in a way that instantly makes us all feel terrible about ourselves for having gotten on board with this. Because, man, then what? Like, then it's like, oh, hey, the thing that looked like a squash match on paper that the, the, the gamblers told you was just an absolutely ridiculous fight that seems borderline unsanctionable. Yeah, that turned out to be totally true. This guy got hurt, uh, and, uh, you all paid $54.99 to watch it. That's when I would think that you might just feel a little bad about it. How are they getting this sanctioned? Like, that, that's not a problem here. We just, we got that taken care of? Apparently. Totally. But Totally. Well, maybe Dana White on Monday can call that coffee shop and get Patrick Cummins' job back. You yeah, think? well, maybe he, he might do that. He he lost it now. So, well, and you know, <laughs> it seems like one of those things where if he does get smashed in the UFC, you got to give him another chance, right? Like that's the way it works. That's the the unspoken uh, part of the agreement there. If you step up and you take this fight, that's kind of a bad idea for you. You get at least one more. I mean, a Lear Latifi, right? The okay. bricklayer. Well, here's hoping. All right, let's do I'm, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, this week, I'm just saying that the official reason that the UFC gave for restructuring its end-of-the-night bonus system last week that it was that it would give the company more flexibility in handing out the money to the fighters. Then again, you can't very well have a big-ass press conference to announce that you're giving half a million dollars to fund the Cleveland Brain Clinic's study on head trauma in combat sports and then carry on offering financial incentives for dudes to knock each other out. Now can you? So if the story is true that the UFC really does want more leeway in handing out the money, 
not that they couldn't just do that anyway without changing the name. Uh, I think it's just more evidence that this company's smartest decisions often happen by accident. I'm just saying. Just saying. You know, I don't get the thing. I mean, I, I understand how people make this argument. Hey, yeah, you're sort of brain health research and then you get rid of the knockout bonus. Who are we kidding? We know what this sport's about, man. Men stripped to the waist <laughs> and they're trying to knock each other's heads off. We know what this is. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, you know, last week we, we covered the Jessica I situation. Uh, this week we learn, uh, according to a report on Fox Sports, Dana White said that uh, as far as her actual levels of, of cannabinoids, uh, this is a quote from Dana White, in Nevada, the legal limit, it's 150 nanograms per milliliters. She was 16 nanograms per, per milliliter. Texas limit is 15 nanograms milliliter. She was 16. So she was one over according to Texas, Nevada. Of course, uh, recent news just uh, kind of upped its drastically upped its allowable level of, of marijuana metabolites that you can have. I'm just saying if this is true and she was one nanogram per milliliter over in a state that has a much lower threshold, it could have been even easier for her than she made it on herself by denying it and trying to discredit reports that she had tested positive for marijuana. She would have been a martyr, a, a victim who we all would have gotten behind here. But no, again, the cover-up is what kills you. I'm just saying, Jessica, I, it could have been so easy. Just, just saying. saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to tell you everything that happened at UFC 170. But as for right now, we're done. We are through. We are out. What are you doing now? Do you want to uh, go snort some cannabinoids? You know, I, I've gotten off of snorting them. I like to put them like in a, in a vaporizer and just inhale the air around me. I've got some cannabinoids brownies that I just cooked up there. Uh, cannabinoids.